Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Well, this morning we come in our study of Matthew to chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and so this morning we'll be considering verses 1 through 23. Matthew 13, 1 through 23. These are the words of Jesus, and this is the Word of God. On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places, where they did not have much earth, and they immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. O Lord God, Lord Jesus, you preached these words so many years ago. You preached them to your first disciples. And now we stand here as your disciples in this generation. And we need to understand this preached word as much as your people did then. For we have the same calling, we have the same challenges, we have the same issues, and you are the same Lord. So we pray, open your word to us this day and make us good ground that your word would take root in us and we would take root and we bear fruit for you. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, Matthew is built around five major discourses which Jesus gave. Just like Moses had five books, so Matthew sets forth Jesus in five major discourses. The first one was the Sermon on the Mount. The second one was Jesus' instructions to his disciples before he sent them out to preach to the cities. And now here comes the third one. So this is the third major discourse, 
and it's the middle discourse, which means it has special significance. And the topic of this discourse is the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus tells his disciples that what they are seeing and what they are hearing is what prophets and righteous men of the Old Testament were waiting for. He says, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, the prophets of old that you honor, that you exalt, that you put on such a high position, and you should. He said, they long to see what you're seeing. And they long to hear what you're hearing. You're hearing it. They couldn't hear it. They couldn't see it. You do. You're more blessed than the prophets and the great righteous of the Old Testament because you are receiving what they long to receive. So Jesus says, blessed are your eyes and your ears. This is what everybody in the Old Testament was looking forward to and longing for and hoping in and waiting for. And now it is here. But it doesn't look like what the disciples expected. What did they expect? Reading the Old Testament, what did they expect? when the Messiah comes? What do they expect when the kingdom of God finally comes into the world and it arrives? Well, what they expect is a glorious, enthusiastic, wholehearted mass response on the part of the entire nation of Israel. What they pictured is what they had for a brief moment when Jesus entered Jerusalem uh, shortly before his crucifixion and all the people are there and they're putting palms before him and he's riding in and they're singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, that little snapshot, and that's what it was, a little snapshot, is what they pictured. That's what it's going to be like. The whole nation is going to galvanize around the Messiah and it is going to be glorious when the kingdom of God comes into the world and then it's going to spread from the whole nation of Israel out to the world. Well, this is not what it looked like. This is not what they were seeing. Now, Jesus assures them later on in this discourse, the kingdom of God is here, and the kingdom of God is indeed going to cover the earth. It is indeed going to take the earth. But the way it does it, in the strange and mysterious purposes of God is not at all like what they were expecting. Instead of seeing a nation responding with one heart to the Messiah and galvanizing around him, what they saw was conflict. All kinds of different responses, but conflict. It started out when Jesus was born, and you have Herod, the king, uh, seeking to kill Jesus and killing a bunch of other baby boys in the process. You have Jesus already in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, you have the running conflict uh, and, the, and the acrimony and the assaults and the uh, uh, animosity of the scribes and Pharisees toward Jesus, always looking for a way to trip Him up, always looking for a way to undercut Him, looking for a way, indeed, eventually to put Him to death. You have Jesus taking the disciples earlier in the Gospel of Matthew across the sea. It's when He calmed the sea and so forth. And He takes them over to the land of the Gergesenes, to a Gentile land, to a land that was plagued by a demon-possessed man who was so violent that he could not be overcome. He, he broke, uh, they'd bind him in ropes, he'd break the ropes and so forth, and he was a menace. And Jesus comes and He heals this man. He casts these demons out. So that this man is now a peaceful man in his right mind. And what's their response? They ask Jesus to leave. Please leave. And what is Jesus' response to that? No, you don't understand. Let me explain to you. He leaves. That's not what they expect. You have Jesus in his second discourse on the cusp of sending out his disciples to go preach. He spends the whole time telling them how they're going to face persecution and opposition and how they must deal with it, how they're going to have to flee from one city to another and from one place to another, and how they're going to have to shake off the dust from their feet from different households and villages and towns who are not going to receive them. And he warns them that the effect of the good news of the kingdom is going to be that it's going to tear Israel apart. It's going to tear families 
apart. It doesn't look at all like what they expected. And it didn't look at all like what they expected in terms of Jesus' preaching of this gospel of the kingdom of heaven either. You start with the challenge that he lays down for his followers in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts out right away by saying, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, the righteous, the scribes and the Pharisees were the very definitions of righteousness. So they thought they were the poster children of righteousness and what it means. How can you possibly go beyond what the scribes and the Pharisees do? Of course, Jesus completely undercut all that. He completely chiseled away all the barnacles and the baloney that they had put all over God's law. And so the good news was Jesus lifted the burden of all these legalistic uh, things that you had to do saying, this is what it means to keep this commandment, and they'd have it all spelled out. He got rid of all that. So he lifted that burden, which was a heavy, heavy burden. But the other part of it is when he cleans away the law of God and it shines forth, there's this new challenge and this new burden that goes straight to the heart. One of the nice things about all the barnacles that the scribes and Pharisees put on God's law, they were very burdensome, but you know, you could hide behind them. You can hide behind all those rules. You know, they're a pain, they're a burden, but you can do them, and you can do them in the flesh. And you don't need to change. Your heart doesn't need to change. You can do them. Yeah, it's a pain, but you can do it. Now that's all gone. Now there's nothing between your heart and the law of God, and the law of God is shining straight on your heart when it comes to adultery, when it comes to idolatry, when it comes to loving your neighbor, when it comes to all these things. And so there's a sense in which a burden's been lifted, but now there's this great sense of conviction that comes from God's Word and His law shining directly on their hearts. So this is, uh, in one sense, this is the easiest thing and the hardest thing one could ever do. And so you have the challenge of discipleship that Jesus lays before the people. And Jesus says in Matthew 9, He, he makes it clear. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Okay? But who is He calling to repentance? Israel. God's people. It's like, wait, wait a minute. I'll t- I'll t- you're wanting to preach to sinners and call, okay, uh, let me show you the place where you need to go. It's right over there. It's right over the sea, right over here to the Gentile lands. That's where you need to go and preach and call them to repentance. Jesus said, I'm calling sinners to repentance, not the righteous. He's preaching to God's own people. And now we come to this discord, and Jesus has throngs following him. Throngs and throngs of people. And he's teaching them in parables. He's telling them stories like the sower of the seed. And he's not explaining it. He explained it to his disciples, this group that's formed up around him, that he's identified as those who do the will of the Father, the new family of God, the new household of God. But he's not explaining it to these throngs and throngs of people who are following him. And that doesn't make any sense to the disciples. What are the people supposed to get from this? The crowds are here. They're listening. Why don't you speak plainly, Jesus? Don't you want them to understand? Now, the answer to that question is what leads us into this third major discourse. The answer to that question and the question of why is the kingdom of God and the Messiah met with all this conflict and varied responses the answer to those questions are the same. And they have to do with the hardness of men's hearts and with the mysterious ways of God and how He has chosen to bring His kingdom into the world and to give it victory over the world. 
Now, in understanding Jesus' answer, the first thing we need to do is we need to clear up some confusion about parables, specifically what is a parable. Now, in English and as modern people, we think of a parable as a helpful illustrative story. You're trying to explain something, and to help explain it, you use an analogy. And we think, well, that's, like, that's what a parable is. It's a helpful illustrative story. But that's not what a parable is in Scripture. The Greek word for parable carries a much wider meaning than the English word parable. The Greek word is used to translate a Hebrew word from the Old Testament, which covers a number of different literary forms. It covers proverbs, fables, prophetic utterances, riddles, allegorical stories, all of that falls within the ambit of the Hebrew word that the Greek word parable is translating. Okay, so all of that's part of a parable. So you see that the, the earmark of a parable, what makes a parable a parable, is not a particular literary form. It can be a proverb, it can be a riddle, it can be an allegorical story, uh, so forth. It can be any of those. So it's not a particular literary form. What makes a parable a parable is the fact that its meaning lies beneath the surface. Its meaning does not lie on the surface. Its meaning is not readily apparent. That is what makes a parable a parable in Scripture. So what that means is that with a parable in Scripture, the hearer or the reader must work to understand it. It's not easy. It's not just laid out. There's a challenge involved. The hearer or the reader must penetrate the surface. They have to ponder it. They have to work. They have to give of themselves or they're never going to understand it. And apart from the hearer or reader doing that, the parable only offers confusion and mystery. That's all it has. Now, when you understand this, you then understand that Solomon's Proverbs are parables within the meaning of the Hebrew and the Greek words. And when we understand that, then we can see a lot more clearly the link between Jesus and Solomon. You remember last chapter, in chapter 11, uh, Jesus talked about Solomon. He called, talked about the Queen of the South traveling so far to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And he said, a greater than Solomon is here. He claimed to be greater than Solomon. In other words, he claims to be the greater Solomon. The one, the Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, is only pointing toward. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, except for one man, Jesus. Except for Jesus. Jesus is greater than Solomon. And so when we understand that Proverbs fit within the meaning of parables, then we can start seeing this link between Jesus and Solomon. In chapter 11, he claims to be the greater Solomon, and now in chapter 13, he's proving it. He's proving it. So Jesus is teaching the crowds in parables, the meaning of which is not apparent on the surface. And he's only giving the explanations to his disciples. And the disciples are wondering why. Why doesn't he speak plainly? Why doesn't he explain these to everyone? Well, Jesus answers them by quoting Isaiah chapter 6 and saying that it is being fulfilled with the people of Israel in that generation. Now, this part that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 is part of an extended passage which goes on for several chapters. And Jesus, as he usually does, is evoking that entire context and that entire passage, even though he doesn't quote it all. Now, let me give you a quick flyover of this passage that Isaiah 6 starts. Isaiah 6 is the chapter where God gives Isaiah the vision of God in His holiness, and He calls Isaiah to be His prophet. And in this extended passage, there are several famous promises of the Messiah and the salvation He will bring which are quoted in the New Testament and applied to Jesus. And several of these are very common to us. We often read them and recite them uh, at Christmas time and in the Advent season. Uh, for example, 
Isaiah uh, chapter 10. This is part of this extended passage. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And that's applied to the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. Isaiah chapter 9. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And it goes on, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establishment with justice and justice forever. Uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. All that glorious messianic promises is in this passage from Isaiah, which Jesus is quoting. So all of that's glorious. And those are the kind of passages which lead the disciples to expect the coming of the kingdom to be this wholehearted, glorious response that galvanizes the whole people. But the problem is, that's just part of this passage. The other part of these passages talk about judgment, severe judgment coming on God's people of Israel. For example, the same passage I just quoted that says, Behold, there shall a rod come forth from a stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Okay, right before that, why is the stem of Jesse, why is the branch of Jesse growing out of his roots? Because of this. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, will lop off the bow with terror. Those of high stature will be hewn down, and the haughty will be humbled. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. In other words, he takes Israel, which is analogized to the tree, and he cuts them down to a stump. That's why the shoot of Jesse is springing up from the root. Okay, so you have glorious messianic promises, and you have judgment mixed in with them. So in Isaiah 6, God is analogizing Israel to a tree. He's saying he's going to cut the tree down further and further until it is nothing but a stump. And then miraculously, out of that stump, a new shoot of life will come, which is Jesus and then those who turn to him. So right after the part of Isaiah 6 that Jesus quotes, let me read you the next few verses. Okay? These are the next few verses. Then I said, Isaiah says, I said, Lord, how long? How long shall we cut down the tree? And the Lord says, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, and the Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth, this is all we're left with, a tenth. A tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming. They're going to face further persecution. As a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. So most of Israel is going to come under horrible judgment. Only the remnant, described as a tenth, uh, will experience the Lord's salvation. Okay, that's what's going to happen in Isaiah's time. And Jesus is saying what happened in Isaiah's time was just a preliminary fulfillment of the real fulfillment of that prophecy, which is coming in Jesus' own generation. Now, why was this judgment coming on God's people in Isaiah's time, and why is it coming on God's people in Jesus' time? Well, he says, because hearing, they hear, but they don't understand. And in seeing, they see, but they do not perceive. Verse 14. In other words, their ears hear and their eyes see, but their heart neither sees nor hears. Their ears hear, their eyes see, but their heart neither hears nor sees. So the, the organs are working, the ears are working, the eyes are working, okay? The brain functions but the heart is not receiving it. The heart is rejecting it. And that is what's characterizing God's people. And that is why the judgment is coming. 
Now, why is it that the ears are working and the eyes are working, <clears throat> but the heart doesn't see or hear? Because their hearts have grown dull and they don't want to understand or perceive. Verse 15, the first part. Their heart is a heart issue. It's not an ear issue. It's not an eye issue. The, the, the doors are open on the outside, so the stuff's coming in. It's coming into the ears. It's coming into the eyes. But the door on the inside, the inside door, is shut off. It's shut off by the heart. Okay? They don't want to understand. They don't want to perceive. Why not? Why would they not want to understand and perceive? Verse 15, because they don't want to turn. They don't want to turn to God in their hearts and be healed. So here's the root of it. In their hearts, they don't want to turn to God and be healed. Therefore, their heart is shutting the inner door so that what they see and hear is not coming in to be understood or perceived, and that is the root of the whole problem. It is a heart problem, a hardness of heart problem. Now, part of God's judgment on people who won't hear or see what He is saying to them is that He gives them more of the same. He gives them more of what they have chosen so that if they don't turn around, eventually they lose the ability to hear and see. If they won't hear and see what the Lord is saying, eventually they lose the ability to see and hear altogether. This aspect of God judging people by giving us over to what we have chosen is perhaps the most severe form of God's judgment, to be given over. And here's the irony about being given over. It feels great at first. You, you know, you, you're, you're not really walking with the Lord. You're turning away from His Word and whatever, and you think, oh, you know, if I, if I don't turn around, if I keep doing this, God's probably going to judge me. But you keep doing it, and everything goes great. Nothing happens. No bad things happen. And so you become more confirmed in what you're doing. That is the worst possible judgment. Far better if God takes a rod and whacks you with it to wake you up and bring you out of that. Far worse judgment is to feel like everything's just going swimmingly, everything's going great. That is the judgment. In that kind of state, we tend to think, oh, God's not judging me. Oh, oh yes, He is. Being given over is the worst possible judgment. So I tell many young people who I have a counsel who have done things they shouldn't have, they've been walking away they shouldn't have, and then things start going really bad, now all this pain has come into their life. And I say, you know, this is a really good thing. This is a very good sign, which confuses them because I'm, I, they go, I'm in pain. I yeah, but that's good. That means God is disciplining you as opposed to judging you. That's what that pain is. That's good. He's treating you like a child. He's treating you like a son or a daughter. It says in Hebrews, He disciplines every son or daughter He receives. And those who have no discipline, there's one reason. They're not sons or daughters. A lack of discipline is a form of disownment. And so I say, it's good that you're hurting. It's good that these bad things have happened. That way we know God's treating you as a child. He's bringing this pain in here. He's disciplined. That's good. I would really be worried if you were feeling no pain. If you weren't having any consequences, then I would really, really be worried. Now, you need to respond to God's discipline. The pain's there for a reason. Respond to it. Turn, turn to the Lord. Now, this is all what God, this whole process of being given over and people refusing to see and hear and then reaching the point God takes away their ability to see and hear because He just gives them over to what they're doing. That's what Jesus is getting at when He says in verse 12, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. This is another way of saying that if you respond to what God has given you, He will give you more and more, and you will have abundance. But if you do not respond to what God has given you, He will take away even what you have. You will never sit still. 
You will never sit still. You will either get more and more because you're responding to what God has given you, or even what you have will be taken away and you will, be ha and you will have nothing because you're not responding. You're moving one way or the other. So Jesus is invoking Isaiah 6 here and the passage which follows its meaning and its historical context. And he's saying that while that passage had an initial fulfillment in Isaiah's day, the real fulfillment is falling on that particular generation in the first century. They have hardened their hearts just like Isaiah described. And a horrible judgment is going to come upon them. Now salvation through the Messiah who is bringing in the kingdom of God, it will come, but it is going to come in the midst of this horrible judgment. And only a remnant, which Isaiah calls a tenth, is going to turn and be saved. Only a tenth is going to turn and be saved. That, Jesus says, is why I am teaching in parables. In other words, Jesus is gearing the method to the message. He's gearing the method to the message. You're going to have all kinds of responses to this gospel message. All kinds of responses. He lists four different responses. Three of them are bad. They're all three different from one another, and, but they're all three bad. Only one of them is good. And that's what you're going to have. And the, and the difference between the responses all depends on the condition of the heart. That's the ground that the seed goes into. It all depends on the condition of the heart and how they receive the word that they're hearing. It's all about that. Now, given the fact that it all turns on the heart and the heart attitude with which the word is received, Jesus is choosing a method of teaching which features the same thing. In other words, he's not going to make it easy believism up front. He's not going to make it something for the casual or the curious. He's going to bury it and make it hard. He's going to make it be worked for. He's going to make it right up front with the whole methodology that he uses that there has to be a heart that responds to that. He's not going to make a method easy and then have the, you know, it, it be hard later. The two marry up. You know, it's interesting that God speaks of his word in the Old Testament in terms of buried treasure. That's the way he speaks of his word in general. In Proverbs 2, in verse, verse 4, now you have to remember, this is Solomon. First nine chapters of Proverbs is Solomon's introduction to the Proverbs. It's a sustained passage. And Pro uh, Solomon here is speaking to a teenage boy who happens to be his son, who's supposed to be the prince. And he's telling his son in chapter 2, verse 4, listen to this. If you seek her understanding, remember, that's what's missing from the parables. The understanding is not on the surface. Proverbs says, I mean, Solomon says to his son, if you seek her understanding as for hidden treasure, something that's buried, something that's not laying around on the surface, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. You will only understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God if you seek for it as for hidden treasure. Now, I ask you, what do people do for buried treasure? What do people do when they believe that some Spanish galleon with a bunch of gold on it sank in 1615 off the shore of wherever? To what lengths do people go to to recover that? How much money do they spend to recover that stuff? Uh, when I was growing up in the panhandle of Florida, many years before, that, that area of Florida had been under five different nationalities. It was actually Pensacola area, the very first uh, settlement in the United States, not St. Augustine. St. Augustine is the first continuous settlement. Pensacola was the earliest, so it goes way, way back. It's been under five different nationalities over time. But anyway, at some point in history, this pirate came through that area named Billy Bowlegs. And so they have this big Billy Bowlegs festival. 
every spring in that part of Florida. And one of the things they do is they take, I can't remember how much money it is, I don't know if it's like $1,000 or 5000 or something like that, but they, uh, or it's a certificate for it, they take it and they put it in a treasure chest and they bury it. And it can be anywhere in that whole area. And of course, you've got all kinds of waterways and the land is weaving around the bays and the bayous and the rivers. And then you've got the Gulf and you've got Okaloosa Island, which is out there. And then it goes back to the mainland. It's, and you've got beach, you've got woods, you've got all kinds of stuff. It can be buried anywhere. And they start putting clues in the paper. Each day, there's a clue about where it is. And there's this whole thing. It goes on for like a month to see who can find this buried treasure. And, and the weird thing about it is, I mean, you know, it's nice to find it, but it's not, it's not like it's a million dollars or something. It's not like it's going to make you rich, you know. You know, it's maybe a thousand or something like that. People go nuts over this Billy Boleg buried treasure thing. Every day, people got the paper out, and they're reading the clue to go find it. And you see people out all over the place, and they have these rods, you know, they stick down in the sand to see if they hit anything that goes clunk. You know, and they've got shovels, and they're digging all over the place. That's what people do for buried treasure. And Solomon says to his son, he says, that's the way God's word is. That's what you have to do for God's word. That's the heart you have to seek it with. And so Jesus is making in that way in his whole methodology that he uses with the people. It's buried treasure. That's really what a parable is. And so it's going to differentiate right away between those who are intrigued those who have the right heart, they're going to go, I, I don't know what he means. But they're going to be intrigued and go, I, I want to know what he means. What does he mean? I have to hear more about this. I need to go ask a question. I need to be like Nicodemus. and I'm going to go to Jesus at night because I know most of the, I'm a Pharisee. Most of the Pharisees are against him. And I don't want to deal with that. I'm going to go to him at night. But I've got to understand more about this. I'm going to go talk to him. And Jesus makes it clear that this difference between the inside of the disciples that he explains everything to and then the outside of the crowds that he doesn't, that's a bridgeable gap. It's a bridgeable gap. Nicodemus bridged it. You know, he comes to Jesus. It's not that he's such a smart guy because he, he comes to Jesus and he asks a question and Jesus goes, you're a teacher of Israel? and You don't understand this? He wasn't a smart guy. He didn't know that much, but he did come. He came. And he asked Jesus, what is this? He comes to him. He says, you have to be born again. He says, what, what are you talking about? I don't know what you mean. Born again. I don't get it. I don't know what you mean about that. Jesus plays around with him a little bit, kind of shoves him, gives him a ch some chastisement about, no, I don't understand this stuff, and he explains it. What about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus, who is not going to respond well, by the way. He's going to end up rejecting the word and walk away because Jesus is going to pierce to his particular idolatry problem, which is his wealth. There's nothing wrong with wealth. God gives wealth. But this young man had a problem with it. So Jesus said, I tell you what you need to do. After he's talked to him about the law of God and everything, he says, you need to give all that away. You need to come follow me. That's an open door, that gap between those who are outside and those who are inside. And he's saying, son, come on through the doorway. Come on. He didn't. But Jesus opened that doorway. So this is a passable gap. It's a bridgeable gap. But only for those who hear the parables and go, there's buried treasure here. I don't understand this. And I need to understand this. I need to know more. I need to go follow this guy. I need to go follow him. Now that's the reason why Jesus is teaching in parables. Now we saw before, in this parable of the sower, there's four different responses. And as I said, three of them are bad. They're all different from one another, but they're bad. And only one is good. And all of these responses are a matter of how soft is the ground. In other words, how soft is the heart so that the seed can, of the word can penetrate it, take deep root, and then spread out. So the whole picture is first it lands on the heart, it penetrates the heart, it takes root, the roots are able to go all the way down, and then the plant is able to spread completely out so that it's filling this heart up. That is what's supposed to happen. 
So it's all a matter of hardness or softness of heart. If you have a heart that is hard through and through, then the word is not even going to penetrate. That's like the wayside, the path, which gets trampled down. It's really, really, really hard. The seed just lays on the surface there. It's very hard. It's on the surface. The birds come and snatch it away. Jesus says Satan comes and snatches the word away. Now, so you see there's, there's a lot of actors. There's a lot of moving parts here. There's a lot of actors on the stage. You have the person with their hard heart. You have Satan who is involved snatching the word away. And so with this kingdom of God, it's going to go forth. It's going to cover the world. But it is a long-term, messy, chaotic process. Because God would have it so. God would have it so. Out of all the possible ministries, out of all the possible responses to the gospel, God chose this one for His Son. By any modern measure, Jesus was a failure. He, he succeeded in taking just about everybody off. He divided people. People didn't understand Him. People didn't know what He was doing. You think about all the times where Christ has blessed a particular generation or a particular church or a particular area by pouring out revival. As John Knox described uh, in the time of the Protestant Reformation in Scotland, there was a great revival, and, and, and Knox said, it's like men are raining from the sky. It's like there's so many people turning to Christ every day. It's just like, it's just like rain pouring down out of the sky. And in Idaho, you don't know what rain is. That's, rain here is a few drops, like heavy rain. Um, down in Florida, we, we have rains, you know, a number of times a year where you cannot see. You have to pull off the side of the road because you can't see the end of your car. You can't see the hood ornament on your Mercedes. Uh, and talk about a bummer. <laughs> you have to pull over. You literally can't see. There's no such thing as like running from your car into the house and, you know, not getting very wet. You won't go three feet without being completely, it's just like you jumped into a pool. You know, it's like men are raining from the sky. People are turning. So how glorious is that? Jesus didn't give himself that. That wasn't his ministry. The apostles didn't have that kind of ministry. They established churches. They faced lots of hardship. Lots of people turned away in the first century, turned away from Christ. They had it hard. That's what Jesus was preparing them for. We, in many ways, so many generations since have experienced a lot more blessings in terms of the ministry than Jesus himself did. This is the way the kingdom of God goes forth. Sometimes it's hard labor. Sometimes there's a lot of confusion and division, and that's what takes place. But this is what we have to get. There's another seed involved here beside the seed of the Word. You know, we talked about the seed of the Word goes out, lands on the heart, it has to take root. So this is very interesting. There's another seed involved, and I read it in one of the passages in Isaiah. It's the same extended passage that Jesus quotes. The seed there is referred to as the remnant of God's people. In other words, the ones who respond to the gospel. They're referred to as the seed there. And, and, the, and the weird thing is that in this passage in, in Matthew 13, when Jesus is telling this parable and then explaining it at the end, sometimes, I mean, clearly he's referring to the word as the seed but sometimes he refers to the people as the seed. And uh, you, it, it's, it doesn't stick out so much in the English, but in the Greek it's, it's there, and all the scholars talk about it. And most of them just go, okay, it's just a little sloppiness, they're just not being so, you know, uh, you know, picky about the grammar or whatever, or Matthew's being a little sloppy. I, I, I don't know, though. Matthew's not really a sloppy guy. I don't know if Jesus was that way either. So there's this weird little ambiguity about sometimes the seed is referring to the word and then sometimes the seed is referring to the person to whom the word has. And I think I'm not going to 
be dogmatic about it, but it seems like Jesus is doing something there, invoking part of Isaiah, which refers to the remnant, the disciples themselves, as the seed that God sows into the land. And so there's this whole challenge for Jesus' disciples, and there's a challenge for us. There's a sense in which Jesus is saying to us, you're the seed. You're the seed. I'm going to sow you. I'm going to sow you in the world. I'm going to sow you where I plant you. Where are we planted? Here we are. We're in Boise, Idaho. We've been sown here. We're seed. We need to bear fruit. We need to be the seed that bears fruit. But what does that depend on? That depends on the seed that Jesus has sown in us. That depends on the word being sown in us, penetrating our hearts, taking root all the way down, and then spreading all the way out in our hearts. That's what makes us good seed. Having the seed of the word have its way with us makes us good seed wherever God sows us so that we are able to bear fruit. We're only able to bear fruit in the world when the seed of the word bears fruit in us. That's the way it works. And so that then brings us to the explanation of the parable of the sower. As I said, three of these are bad situations. Only one that is good is the heart that is soft all the way down and from side to side, so the word can go all the way down and all the way out. That's the person who actually ends up bearing fruit. And notice that the people who bear fruit are all different. They're not the same. They don't all bear the same amount of fruit. They don't bear fruit the same way. Some are 30, some are 60, some are 100. You know, there's no indication of any kind of competition here. But they all bear fruit from the Word. They're all good plants. And they're all good plants for the same reason. Their hearts were soft and receptive through and through. So the Word could go all the way down and all the way out. And anything blocking the Word from going all the way down and all the way out it's been rooted out of that heart. You have some hearts that have some softness on the surface. So the, the, the word penetrates to that point and there's a response, a favorable response to the word. The problem is there's hardness underneath. There's rocks under there, that's hardness. There's hardness underneath. The word only goes so deep. So in that generation that means Jesus says that's tribulation and opposition and persecution because of the word which they were going to face, Jesus tells them again and again, they fall away. All right? Then you have the other words where you don't have rocks right underneath the surface. The word can penetrate deep, more deeply. It can get some roots. The problem is, is it can't spread out side to side because you have other stuff growing in there too, thorns, malicious stuff, bad stuff, pernicious stuff. And so the, it can't spread out. It gets choked and uh, it doesn't bear fruit. And those are those, he says, that, the, that um, who are trying to hold on to this life and the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Now, in the first century context, what that meant was they're trying to hold on to what they had in Judaism. In other words, they don't want to lose their houses, they don't want to lose their money, they don't want to lose their families and their friends and their communities. They're looking at all that. Because it's all going to go away in the first century. Jesus is saying it. And he's saying, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. You're going to have to lose everything for me in order to find it. And so those are the ones that it's choking out. They're thinking, I can hold on to this and my connections and the, and the money I have and the people I know. We'll get through this. But we've got to turn away from Jesus because this is just getting crazy. And we're going to hold on to what we've had. We're going to hold on to our middle class life. You want to put it in today's term? We're going to hold on to the American dream. We're going to hold on to this wonderful middle class American life that we have. The money and the freedom and the houses and so forth. We're going to hold on to that. Jesus is saying that's choking the word out. Now he's not saying go get rid of everything. He's not saying that. He's saying when it comes down to a choice... You have to go with Jesus. If it means losing everything, you have to go with Jesus. And folks, this is not easy. 
Do you want to lose your lifestyle? Do you want to lose your house? Do you want to lose your job? Do you want to lose your car? Do you want to lose your money? Do you want to lose your ability to have enjoyment? Do you want your kids to be living in poverty? Do you want to look there and look into your children's faces and say, I don't know where the next meal is coming from. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have one. I don't know what's going to happen left. Who wants that? Nobody wants that. And so you see, it presents a real, real temptation. And you start seeing that the whole goal of producing fruit is a long-term thing. You only know really what you have once you've gone through hardship and temptation and there's been the opportunity to take some other paths. That's the only time we really know whether we're really bearing fruit or not. So bearing fruit is a long-term proposition. Uh, and Jesus knew the persecution was coming in his day, and a bunch of them were going to turn back. Well, how can we apply these things to us? Number one, we need to realize that I'm not trying to be uh, a scaremonger here, um, but we, we could be soon facing hardship and persecution for the Word. I mean, there are things that are out there that have never been out there on the landscape of uh, America. Uh, we have, um, you know, the homosexual marriage that's increasingly, I mean, the president is advocating it. Uh, is being increasingly uh, uh, sought to be implemented in different states and so forth. We have, um, with Obamacare, aside from the issue of whether you like big government or not, you've got the issue of businesses like Hobby Lobby, Christian businesses, and some church-time church ministries, um, like a, uh, a church hospital or something like that, or a church entity it's not the church itself it's a separate nonprofit entity but it's underneath a church that's ministering to the poor they're being forced to pay for health care services which includes contraception services but also stuff like the morning after pill and so you've got businesses like Hobby Lobby that are facing if they don't do this they can be facing a million dollars a day and fine and they're going Christian business not gonna do it not gonna do it yeah we don't know how that's gonna turn out I don't want all these bad things to happen. I'll tell you right now, I don't want to lose my house and my cars. I don't want to lose my golf clubs. I don't want to lose my family. I don't, I, no. And, and you know, I don't, I'm a softy. Comes a lot of that stuff. No, I don't, I don't want to go through that. But we have to understand we may. And we have to be ready. The latest, and I think the most serious, is women in combat. And, and I'll tell you where this is going. Where it's going is your daughter's being drafted. I've already heard an admiral or a retired admiral advocate this. He was asked, well, do you think women should then, you allow them into these positions, you allow them to compete for these positions, should women be drafted? Oh, absolutely. And of course, they spin it. We need the best. We need all the best there. So absolutely, they should be drafted. That's where it's going to go unless God works a miracle. And so we're facing with some issues here where things could change. And when you, when you look at other countries where things have gone downhill, sometimes it happens rapidly. It mulls along for decades and decades and decades and decades, and then it goes south fast. We don't know what's going to happen. I'm hoping for the best. I'm, but I'll tell you this, the only thing that's really going to turn things around is... God granting a reformation and revival which sees tens of millions of Americans coming to Christ and walking with Him. Uh, that is the only thing. Conservatism will not save the day. Family values will not save the day. That's a rear guard battle. You're just buying time with that. I'm saying fight that rear guard battle, but understand it for what it is. It's a rear guard battle. You're buying time. Unless God grants a huge revival, this is not turning around. And remember that revivals always start in the church. Remember who Jesus is preaching to in this message. He's preaching to God's people. He's preaching the gospel to God's people. And he's preaching repentance to God's people, which is a large part of what gives offense. Do you know who we are? 
We're the believers. We're God's people. We're the Christians. Don't you understand that, Jesus? Yeah, it's like, it's just like the people in the Old Testament were offended by the prophets. Same reason. We're God's people. I'll show you who you need to be preaching to, these unbelievers, these pagans out there who are ruining society. Jesus, the apostles, they're always preaching to God's people because that's where revival starts. And it flows out from that. They're always forming up a nucleus of those who are responding in repentance, those who get the fact that when Jesus comes to us and preaches to us first and tells us to repent first and tells us that we are the problem, they get the fact that that is a compliment. That's another way of Jesus saying, you're my children. You know, because a good leader, a good mayor of a town always starts with his own kids. That's where he starts and says, show these other kids how to behave. Show these other kids how to repent. We have to show the world what repentance looks like. We have to show the world what turning to God looks like. And that's a compliment that Jesus preaches the gospel to us, because that is where revival always starts. Now, we want to be good seed, which means we want the seed to grow in us so that we bear fruit in the world. We want to be a center, a nucleus of worship and of witness and of love and service to one another and going out from that. But it all starts with us responding to the gospel. We, the first step in getting anybody else to respond to the gospel is us responding to the gospel. So let me ask you, have you responded to the gospel lately? Are you responding to the gospel daily? It's not something you do once. It's something you do every day. This is always the message to God's people. This was Jesus' message in essence. The gospel calls for a fresh response every day. Because Jesus is a living person. The Father is a living person. The Holy Spirit is a living person. And a relationship is a living thing. Now, responding to the gospel, as Jesus tells us in verse 15, involves turning. What does it look like for you to respond to the gospel today? It means wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you turn. You turn. You turn where? You turn to God. You turn to God. Sometimes that means you got to turn all the way around. Sometimes that means you just have to turn partway around. You're starting down a side street and you need to turn partway back around. You need to turn to God. Sometimes it means you just lift your eyes to God. You're facing the right way. You're walking the right way. But it means you have to turn. You have to lift your eyes to God wherever you are. This is why taking some time daily for the purpose of turning to God is important. It's important because it helps you respond to the gospel daily. Turning to God daily in and through His Word. Remember, the seed is the Word. Because we want the Word to go all the way down. All the way down in our hearts so that it can then spread all the way out in our hearts and it governs our hearts. So let me give you some, some suggestions for turning to God daily in and through His Word. In and through His Word. Number one, and that is confessing. When you go to God, confess, and confess your sins. Do so on the basis of His Word. And I would urge to use as a rule, use the two great commandments as a means of confession. So that, look, if you've done something you know is wrong, certainly you confess that. But don't have your confession primarily being trying to think if you did something wrong, you know, and confessing that. Try to make your confessions primarily how you have failed to do the two great affirmative love commandments. You know, go to God and confess, you know, Lord, Father, I have not loved you with all of my heart, that is, with all of my passions with all of my emotions, and I have not loved you with all my soul, with all of my 
being, and I have not loved you with all of my mind, with all of my thoughts, and with all of my imagination. And I have not loved you with all of my strength and my might. Let your confession start there and think about the, what you have left undone and the way you have failed to love God that way. And then start thinking about where else that has shown itself. Confess how you have failed to love those whom God has placed you around, your neighbor, as yourself. Think about your relationships. Confess the fact, men, you know, Lord, I have not loved my wife the way a woman deserves to be loved. I have not loved my wife like Christ loved the church. I have not been her champion. I have been annoyed. I have complained. I have been critical. When she has different things that she struggles with and flaws, instead of being her champion and going in and fighting for her in prayer, I criticize, I push her off in my heart. Women, if you have a husband, you know, have you loved your husband the way a man deserves to be loved? What about your children? Have you loved them as Christ loved his disciples? Children, have you loved your parents? Have you loved your siblings? Have you loved your fellow Christians like Christ has loved us? That's the measure he gives us. Have you loved the lost the way God loves the world for whom he gave his only begotten son? Start there. I think it puts us on a much better footing in understanding who God is and how we've really fallen short. And I think it puts us, it enables us to confess sin thoroughly without becoming self-centered about it. Okay? So I would urge you to consider that. Thank God for His love and salvation, for His wisdom and His strength. Confess the fact that all that God is and everything He does is good and perfect. That everything He brings into your life is good and perfect, even if it's evil from somebody. It's good and perfect. And confess that. When you spend time in the Word... Ask God to commune with you. Jesus says, you know, that he who has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me, and me and the Father, we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. We will commune with him. Ask God to commune with you, to disclose himself to you, to show you his glory, to show you his beauty and his power. Ask him to do that as you spend time in his word. And I would specifically urge you to engage, have some time where you engage in the biblical exercise of meditation. Meditation on God's Word. Meditation is the word, it's a cow term, it's the word for rumination. So if you really, really, really want to meditate on God's Word biblically, the first thing you have to do is meditate on it. You, I mean, you have to memorize it. You have to put it inside. The cow eats the grass, it goes down, the cow then brings it back up and then chews on it. So to really meditate, you have to memorize it first so you're bringing it from in here and you're bringing it back up. You're not having to look at it on the page. And this is something you can do by yourself, you can do it in the car, but you have to memorize the word. Listen to what else Proverbs, I mean Solomon told his son. If you receive my words, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. If you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, you know, that is when you seek it as hidden treasure. So we're supposed to take this treasure we're seeking and treasure it in us. We put it down in us. Once you have it memorized, and I would urge you to do extended passages, once you have it memorized, you pray, you say it aloud. And as you say it aloud and you recite it, you preach it to yourself. You explain it to yourself. You turn it around and you explain it and you preach it and you apply it and you pray it to God. And it's just, this is the whole process of meditation. God's Word has some peculiar promises that go for meditation. And you start in Psalm 1, which is the first thing I would urge you to memorize. Psalm 1 and 2. They originally were one psalm, and they are the gateway to the psalms. You know, it talks about man whose delight 
think treasure is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. These are irrigation canals. The water is coming right there. Are you drinking? He meditates day and night. He will bear fruit, and whatsoever he does will prosper. Now, it's very easy, and let me speak to you young people, it's very easy to hear stuff like that and just think this is just kind of poetic exaggeration. Oh, meditating on the Word, you know, whatever he does is prosper. Uh, that's, yeah, maybe that's for a monk somewhere in a monastery. No, it's not. This is real. This is real. These are real promises. And I can tell you, I know this to be true. You say, nobody's ever done this. I don't know anybody's ever done this. I did. It's one of the things that God in mercy impressed upon me as a new Christian at 17. And I began to memorize long sections of scripture and to meditate on them. And let me tell you, I needed a lot of work on me. I needed a lot of work. And it is one of the most life-shaping, life-changing things that has ever happened uh, to me. And so I urge you to do it. Are you having trouble in school? It's the first thing I'd have you do. Yes, you can get a tutor. Yes, you can do. Yeah, do all that. This is the first thing I'd have you do. Start memorizing and meditating on God's Word. Let it wash over you. And as you go through the day, know yourself and see yourself in terms of God's Word. When you start to head down a side street, when you start to do something you shouldn't, when your anger starts to come up, or your annoyance starts to come up, or your unbelief and your insecurity starts to come up, or whatever it is that you wrestle with, understand where you are. Look in the mirror of God's Word and understand what's happening to you and say to yourself, this is the way I'm feeling, but that's not what I'm going to do because this is wrong. If I'm starting to get disappointed in God, no, it's not God, it's me. And my unhappiness is coming from in here. It's not coming from out there. Stop yourself and say, this is what I feel, but here's the truth out here. And I'm going this way. I'm not going this way. I'm not going to do what's natural for me. I'm going to act according to God's word. That's the way we get transformed from within. That's the way the word has its way with us. And we become fruitful seed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.